the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up... Well, hello. Uh, welcome back. To the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, so in this episode, I'm going to get back to The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Uh, I plan to spend about five episodes overall on this book, and this would be the second episode. So we're, we're going to get deeper into this, this text. Um, in the last episode, I talked quite a lot about uh, Tuckman's sort of overall perspective here, what she's trying to do in this book, and I, I tied it to quote a cold word brinksmanship. Um, and, I, and I still think that that's, that's part of the context here, right? But as we move into the later parts of this book, especially after that kind of introduction, which, um, you know, I think is it's pretty compelling stuff. I, I really enjoyed it, even though it wasn't all that new to me. Um, I got some details about some of the generals and some of the, the figures and the, 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 the characters, if you will, of this of this drama. Um, and, and, and I got quite a lot out of it. But as I've been reading deeper into this book, it kind of becomes much more military history. It still has that feel that we're really getting into the heads of these people and their decisions. And I think that's that's the value of this book. Uh, ultimately, more, you know, even given I think it's a warning about brinkmanship, a warning about entrenched planning. It's also, I think, a very interesting study of decision making, why people make the decisions they do uh, in the context of the fog of war. Um, and how people make a lot of bad decisions and wrong decisions and, and change too slowly, right? So I think that's what we see all these major belligerents doing in, you know, as we go through this book. Remember, this book just covers literally just one month of the war, just that first month of the war, when, um, when kind of everything got put into place. Every, you know, these different sides got, you know, thrust into an intractable situation, right? Of course, after August, World War One and the Western Front becomes trench warfare, and it's it's not a hundred percent static, but you know, compared to wars previous and compared to wars later, it's a very much a static war. Um, but how do we get there? How do we get there? And it's all decisions in, in August. I think that's her overall thesis, largely. In, in a way, what comes later is it's certainly significant millions of people die it's uh you know transformative for so many countries in europe and around the world um and certainly i think the end of the war is worthy of its own text in a way right and there are some been some great scholarship about the aftermath of the war in the versailles treaty and the rise of nationalism in asia and africa um and the different the whole idea of self-determination that none of that's in this book of course but i, I think that's what a lot of scholarship is focusing on on now um, now, I haven't read a lot of the military history that's come out, you know, in the last few years. You know, we've had the 100th anniversary of the First World War. So there's a lot of renewed scholarship and interest in the Great War. And we've had, uh, you know, a lot of people writing about these issues. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's, incre it's still an area of interest for a lot of, of, of writers. It's still something people are coming back to right it's, it's you know how like the nostalgia cycle right we 
you know, at a certain point we go back to study a certain period of time, right? Um, of course, when I was when I was growing up, it was World War Two. Was it seemed that was on the shelf, right? That was what was interesting to people, and of course, it still is. But World War One, a lot there's been a lot more attention to it lately. You know, films. We have was it Peter Jackson did the colorization uh, of old lot like well not lost but previously unviewed footage of the war. Um, we have that 1917 movie. And, of course, a whole lot of scholarship coming out. I don't know about fiction. I'm sure there's been a lot of fiction, too, exploring the war. So it's 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 interesting to reflect on this book, which is pretty old at this point, you know, over 50 years old. But, uh, but yeah, it's... Anyways, that, that's kind of my introduction here, what I'm, what I'm trying to, to set up here. I just think it's, it's, a, it's a good book to go back to. My only hesitation is, is it, there's a lot of military history here. And if you don't really dig that stuff, you know, um, it's, you know, you may not find it interesting. It might, this might be a, a skimmable book if your primary interest isn't, isn't the military history. I'm kind of like, find myself often peeking ahead to the Proud Tower, which is later in the Library of America edition of Tuckman's works. But actually it's, you know, because it, it was written later. It was written after Guns of August. But, you know, it seems... You know, it's a little bit seems a little bit more analytical dealing with like questions of the of, you know, the period before the war. Maybe I should have done that one first before jumping into the, the guns of August. And to be honest, I sort of slowed down. I, you know, I've been busy, too. I had my final exams and and a semester stuff. So I didn't have all the time to to read, but I also kind of got bogged down in some of the, the the war history here. A lot of people, a lot of generals, a lot of uh battles being described but i think what it all comes down to is really an analysis of 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 how decisions are made and why they're made um and and how not free we are right as as policymakers, as people making decisions people in power making decisions they didn't really have that absolute freedom that we sometimes imagine right you know and people who play like video games of of, of war you know they kind of you know you, you get this impression that you, you have options, but in reality, they didn't, right? Whether it was through training, whether it was a lot of this was the planning that went into the, into the war. And I think that's really her, her, her warning here is, you know, if you make certain decisions, they become, become entrenched, right? And that's a, that's a pun I'm using on purpose, right? Uh, where, you know, the war, of course, does become trench warfare, but these people's mindsets were entrenched as well. And we get a lot more of that in in this section of the book. So the 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 period in this section, the second hundred pages or so of the book covers it's a few chapters. Um, basically, it covers uh, August, like there's all, several chapters just on August one on those that critical day in which you know, the decision to go into Belgium was made in Berlin. The decision to commit to the defense of Belgium by Britain um, was made. Uh, everyone, like, committed to the war plans pretty much within a few hours of each other. And that's, they had to. That was the nature of their, their war planning. And I talked about this in the last episode a little bit. And, of course, if, if you didn't, you know, everyone who studied World War one history knows a little bit, I think, about how much war planning played, you know, how big of a role it played in in 
leading to the events of, of August and, and the aftermath. Of course, nothing went as people planned, but it was all because of the plan, right? That all the plans sort of failed. Uh, I think that's another warning. You never know what's going to really happen in, in the battlefield, but, um, you know, that's, I guess the, the, the lesson is don't go to war. <laughs> um, but that's not a decision governments often make. So anyways, yeah, these chapters, we got a little subsection here called Outbreak. I think the first section was called Plans, and then the second section, subsection is called Outbreak. Um, and then we get into the, after this, the, the rest of the book is just the war itself as it, as it broke out. Um, so chapter six uh, is just, it's called August 1st in Berlin. And um, not much more to say about this. It's that I haven't already said. It's just that the, the Schlieffen plan and the various war plans. And the Schlieffen plan in broad terms is, you know, you, you attack France through Belgium, seize Paris quickly in order to take advantage of the slow mobilization of Russia. This would give Germany hopefully time to, to move there, right? But it all requires very, very precise timing, right? Like even like the train schedules were all planned out in advance, how long it would take soldiers to get from their hometowns to the front. It was all planned out in timetables and things. And and that forces their hand to go, right? And, and that means they have to make that faithful decision of, of Brussels or the, the ultimatum on Brussels, the invasion of Belgium, which, of course, brings Britain into the war. And so I think there's a lot of focus in Tuckman's book about like Britain's role in this and in Britain's decision to, to, to back uh, Belgium and enter the war. And of course, everyone was sort of planning on that, um, you know, the one hope that Germany had was that Belgium would capitulate, right? If they capitulated, if they just surrendered, then there wouldn't have been a proper invasion. Um, and Britain wouldn't be obliged by treaty to support them. So that's what's in their mind. So the hope is just intimidate them and force, to, force them to let troops through so it wouldn't be an aggressive act, right? And there's a little bit here about who's blameworthy. This is in a later chapter, actually, but but... You know, Germany was aware that if they do go into Belgium without Belgium's permission, without them agreeing to the ultimatum, blame will fall on them. They will be the aggressor, right? It was something France was also conscious of, that they didn't want to be the aggressor. They even moved troops away from the Belgian border. It's not to give Britain any excuse not to have to fulfill their alliance, their, their defensive treaty with Belgium. Um, so that's what seems to be on the mind of the German planners and, and decision makers on August 1st. But how, how, you know, Tuckman really focuses on just how, you know, down to the minute these decisions, you know, were. Quote, it was now minutes before seven o'clock, the hour when the 17th Division was scheduled to move into Luxembourg. Bethman excitedly insisted that Luxembourg must not be entered under any circumstances while waiting for the British answer. Instantly, the Kaiser, without asking Moltke, ordered his aide-de-camp to telephone and telegraph 16th Division headquarters at Trier and canceled the movement. Moltke saw ruin again. Luxembourg's railroads were essential for the offensive through Belgium against France. At that moment, his memoirs say, I thought my heart would break, end quote. Um, just how much, like just minutes, hours mattered in the, the Schlieffen plan. Um, maybe they needed a plan B. Maybe, maybe that's part of it. But I'm, I'm not sure that's really possible, right, given the 
the decisions that came up to it. That's what the first part of the book's really about, is how we got to this moment where where minutes mattered. It's really kind of dramatic. It's, it's, it's actually rather exciting, uh, the way Tuckman presents it. Um, the next chapter we have is August 1st, Paris and London. So this is looking at it from the, the other point of view. Um, um, and all right, there's warning signs. There's warning signs that things might not go according to plan. There's actually a whole chapter here called Home Before the, the Leaves Fall, which was, of course, all, or not all wars, but many wars begin with people saying, oh, this will be over in a season, right? Even Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, it was believed to be finished by, by wintertime, right? Um, you know, that's partially because you want to present to the people in a, in, in an era of mass society, of, of newspapers, of public, where public opinion matters. You want to convince people that wars won't drag on because that's not very popular. Um, but that's what, they, that's what they really believed, right? These war plans made it sound like the war could be easily won. Um, I want to get back and talk about the French war plans a little bit because they are, they're different. They're not quite the same. The Germans seem to really focus on the timetables and the organization and logistics of it all. The French had this strong belief in Elan, I told, as I talked about last time, in the attack, in the, the bold, decisive action. Right? And that, of course, is a disaster for France in, in August. They, they're not, they don't lose, but it seems it was, it was pretty close, right? But anyways, uh, the warning signs, one warning sign is like financial shocks. It's like, uh, you know, what the generals maybe didn't know, people in the banking sector, you know, were, were anxious about. Quote, that Friday, eve of the August bank holiday weekend, the stock exchange closed down at 10 a.m. in a wave of financial panic, which had started in New York when Austria declared war on Serbia and which was closing exchanges all over Europe. The city trembled, prophesizing doom and the collapse of foreign currencies. Bankers and businessmen, according to Lloyd George, were aghast at the idea of war, which would break down the whole system of credit, which London, with London at its center, end quote. And I, I, I was struck by this because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about growing conflict between the United States and China in recent months. And I, and I think there's real reasons to be concerned. But one response I've heard from people is, well, essentially it boils down to great powers don't fight wars, right? Like it's too disruptive, right? A war between China and the United States would be devastating to the world economy, to the financial system. It's like, yeah, it would be. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a war, right? It's, we've seen plenty of examples in history in which wars were fought um, despite being devastating and disruptive to the world economy. Great powers do fight wars. It's not just because great powers are intertwined in a global economy doesn't mean they don't fight wars. Um, in the same section, though, she, uh, she returns to this war planning, uh, the centrality of it, and, and again, how these decisions become entrenched and force these governments to, to commit to, to the wrong choice. Um, Quote, if, as Klauschwitz justly said, war is the continuation of national policy, so are war plans. The Anglo-French plans worked out in detail over a period of nine years were not a game or an exercise in fantasy or a paper practice to keep military minds out of other mischief. They were a continuation of policy or they were nothing. 
They were no different from France's arrangements with Russia or Germany's with Austria, except for the final legal fiction that they did not commit Britain to action. Uh, members of the government and parliament who disliked the policy simply shut out their eyes and mesmerized themselves into believing the fiction. Well, anyways, that's the main idea here. Um, chapter eight is called Ultimatum in Brussels. And, and now we're kind of getting more into the actual events. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's compellingly presented because there is some drama here. Like, uh, here's one big one, and that is, does Belgium uh, surrender to Germany's demand that it allow German troops through, therefore nullifying the the aggression, right, which would trigger the British alliance. Um, and, of course, the key player here is uh, King Albert of Belgium, uh, who, you know, by standing up to Germany, you know, becomes a really, really crucial figure in this. And maybe the ambiguity that makes these war plans, uh, you know, makes them more rigid in a way, right? Like, you don't know this unknown... So known unknown I'm trying to think of the Rumsfeld's different categories um, but anyways it had a lot to do with like Belgium's opinion of King Albert again we're kind of get the suggestion of, of this era of mass politics um, where the Belgians you know put so much effort the Belgian government put so much um, focus on this neutrality this this defense of their neutrality offered by other great powers, particularly Great Britain, as their shield, right? Um, and the public became kind of apathetic about that aspect of that. But uh, still, Albert's commitment to resisting Germany becomes really key in all the events that follow in August of 1914. Here's how she puts it. On August 2, King Albert presiding at the Council of State when it met at 9 clock p.m. in the palace open with the words and let me jump in here just the focus on time again like you know the emphasis on minutes and hours you know, for these decisions because everything is dependent on on his decision here uh, you know the invasion of Luxembourg the invasion of Belgium the movement of armies the, the, the time for mobilization all of it is down to, to minutes and hours Anyways, here's what he said. Our answer must be no, whatever the consequences. Our duty is to defend our territorial integrity. In this, we must not fail. He insisted, however, that no one be present should allow himself any illusions. The consequences would be grave and terrible. The enemy would be ruthless. If Germany is victorious, he said, Belgium, whatever attitude, will be annexed to the German Empire. So anyways, that's uh, that's chapter eight is all about that. Uh, the, really the head of what's in the head of King Albert and in the, the head, the, the mind of the Belgian government and its relationship with its people. Chapter nine is called uh, Home Before the Lees Fall. And this is, of course, this whole statement, as soon as you read it, you know it, it's going to be a bit about the optimism of a quick war. Um, again, I think that's tied up to this mass politics, especially in Great Britain which uh, this chapter really focuses on. Also France to a, to a lesser degree, um, and also Germany as well. They're all kind of touched at. They all have this, this, this optimism but for a quick war. But I don't know how much of that is. I mean, I, I guess that's, it sounds like that was in the culture. That's what most people believe. There are dissenting voices who say this is going to be a long war, kind of like the, the General Sherman voice, right? I think in the United, U.S. Civil War, it was the same thing, right? Oh, just 30,000 volunteers will crush, whip this rebellion overnight. 
it was Sherman who said this is going to be a long war, right? But no one believed him until it became a long, bloody war. Um, and I, I think the same kind of thing happens here. Maybe that's just uh, kind of a, what you expect in the way people talk about it. You know, people inflating, over-exaggerating the, the potential, the you know, the power of their militaries. Um, a lot of optimism also on the French side about their the strength of their army and the strength of their plans and the, especially the power of that Elan. Once again, that Elan is so key to um, this nationalism, right? I, I didn't mention, maybe I, I must have talked about it in the last episode, but that's part of this, right? This belief in the invincibility of your army, the importance of the attack, the the, the I guess I'm trying to get at the inconceivability of defeat. Right. Like, no, can a, can a country really a great power anyways convince itself that it can be defeated? Small countries, maybe the reality is what it is. But, uh, you know, Belgium, it seemed was a little bit more, at least the government, Albert, was a little bit more level headed on what would happen by refusing Germany's ultimatum. But when you're talking about France or Germany or Russia, you know, these aren't. These are great powers, and so much of their nationalism is built in this sense of national power and national pride. And so it, they must be successful, right? And they must be successful quickly. Um, I bet you if you even look at like financial panics throughout history, right? Um, go back to like 2007, 2008, the beginning of the financial crisis, you know, and see what people are saying. I bet you a lot of people on uh, CNBC or you know, the, the money shows are saying, oh, this is just going to be a short correction in the market. It'll be over soon. Right. Of course, it wasn't. Right? Uh, the really one interesting thing in this chapter, though, that struck me is just how, um, you know, there are voices, ambassadors in Berlin, other people in governments that have some pro-German sentiments, but largely Germany, like how isolated Germany was at, at this point in its history is is I think another problem that Tuckman kind of lobs in there is why these states became so intractable and, and unable to move out of this trap that they, they set for themselves. Um, it's just because Germany was not. And I wonder if this is a, a challenge of, of, of rising powers, maybe not always, but in, in some cases, I'm thinking of like Japan in the 30s regional allies i don't think they really had any uh china today a rising power that doesn't really have many allies germany at this point losing allies and i i think it's because rising powers are always confronting established alliance structures and, and the status quo right and that's going to if not like uh, bother people at a, at a in an ideological way, at least make them less comfortable, right? It's harder for them to make make friends. You have established powers, of course, than presenting a message like the world is good with us in charge, and if these people replace us, it's going to be worse, right? Their system is is, is bad in some way. So I, I think there's something there. I, I'm kind of I don't have a full thesis here about this, but I you know it's not something I think that much about unless I'm given a book like this, but I think there's something to that. I think it's it's something that Tuckman throws into the picture here, though. So these chapters make up, which is essentially part two of the book, which is, is uh, um, called uh, Outbreak. Then we move to the 
final i think it's the rest of the book is is the next section called battle which basically covers the actual fighting so then we really kind of dig into like diplomatic and particularly military history like the, actually diplomacy fades away and it becomes much more about war uh, i don't know if that was just by the nature of her topic or if that was a conscious choice on tuckman's part to emphasize diplomacy earlier on in planning and then just to get to the brutality and the violence of war later on and the chaos of the war right that's a big theme uh, as we get deeper and deeper into this book um but uh first we have a uh chapter 10 in battle which actually is is kind of still about diplomacy here the major topic is uh the ottoman empire um as you probably know the ottoman empire didn't play much of a role early in the war i think by 1915 they were playing a significant role but it really was crucial because a lot of powers and and even smaller nations that didn't know quite where to go in the conflict or had reason to be neutral had reason to fight once turkey got into the war of course turkey the ottoman empire the remnants of the ottoman empire you know they get into the war largely because they believe they can regain lost territory in the Balkans, right, which they've been losing for decades and decades, right? They're, they have a border with Russia. They have conflict with Russia, right? And, and there's, of course, ethnic issues in the Ottoman Empire as the leadership in Constantinople is becoming more Turkish, uh, more nationalist. You got the rise of the Young Turk movement, uh, and this leads them to have conflict with Greeks and Armenians. And we all know that tragic history. Uh, we got the Armenian Genocide during the war beginning really in 1915. And of course, that's the cover of a war becomes an excuse for horrible violence against the Armenians. And we get the eventual the expulsion of Greeks from much of, of Turkey in the aftermath of the war and during the war too, I think. Ethnic cleansing, right? Some of the first ethnic, ethnic cleansings of the 20th century happened here. Um, but at the same time, the Ottoman Empire thought it could regain some of its lost territory, which it lost to again, ethnic nationalist separatist movements, right? Like, um, you know, the Romanians and the Bulgarians and originally the Greeks goes back a century, right? When the, to the Greek uprising. Um, so all of this is in the backdrop of, of this. Um, and it's really hard to see how, what the Ottoman Empire could have gained by choosing another side, right? Because Serbia already on the side of, of you know, Russia and France through these alliances. It's not clear what Turkey could gain by by joining the other side. But it seems to have been still in the air. So what Germany does, that's what this chapter is really about. Germany Germany sends a couple battleships, a couple ships, maybe not battleships, but uh, maybe cruisers. I'm not sure the, the size of these ships. Um, what were they? The Gobin and the Bruslaw. And I think what, like, these become Turkish ships at the end. They're like loans by the German Empire to, to Turkey. I don't know if the intent was to be given back after the war, but of course the German Empire collapsed. So I think they remain Turkish ships after the war. Um, but of course, Germany had interest. Why? Well, this is uh, geography by having. The Ottoman Empire as an ally, this would restrict shipping through the Black Sea to Russia, right? Closing off a, a avenue of communication between the British Mediterranean and uh, and uh, Russia, the ally, right? Of course, you have still the northern North Sea, but that's that freezes over in the winter and all that. 
that. So the Black Sea is the more stable trade route, and that could be disrupted, right? And you have all that, that British shipping in the Mediterranean. Um, so it was useful for that. Um, that's why Germany had an interest in the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire joining the war. And this was their effort to try to get them on their side. So a lot of this is about the diplomacy and this mission of these ships to get there. Now, what's really key here, though, uh, that and, and Tuckman gets to it at the end of the chapter, is this basically forces um, other countries to choose sides too, right? So once Turkey's on the side of the allies, or on uh, sorry, of the central powers, um, Italy, which has irredentist claims in the Balkans, uh, including irredentist claims for some islands that the Ottoman Empire had, you know, Italy had, it was easier for Italy to, to join the war uh, on the side of the allies. Of course, Italy had an alliance with, a defensive alliance with Germany, but as Germany being the aggressor, back to this important centrality of Germany being the aggressor in Belgium, changing so much, right? Italy wasn't forced to join on the war on the side of Germany. They could join on the other side eventually. But Bulgaria, Romania, Greece eventually, inevitably uh, entered the war as well. So this, uh, you know, short term, it seemed like a good idea to lay claim to this, make this empire, this dying empire, this declining empire an ally. But long term, you know, it led to, you know, shifting the balance of fortunes away from, from, from the central powers. Um, and then we get to chapter 11, which uh, really does finally get us into the actual fighting uh, of the war. And she starts out talking about how really the war plans had this kind of revolving, it looks like a revolving door. You have Germany sweeping in in the north. So the plan is to go through Belgium, you know, surround, kind of close like a door over the French armies, right? Uh, kind of engulf them. Kind of like Battle of Caneva, which is one with one flank doing the engulfing, right? That was key to the Schlieffen plan. But at the same time, the French had these plans to attack like uh, through Alsace-Lorraine, right? Which is, of course, their irredentist obsession in the, in the end or, uh, later years of the, of the 19th century. So it makes sense that they're going to go into, into um, Alsace and Lorraine. Um, and, you know, that's going to be a disaster for France, as we'll see later on. Um, we also have uh, the forts in Belgium, the Liege forts, and which are going to slow down the German. So their significance in the war is they slow down the German advances. Um, but the French, they still have this belief in the initiative, this belief in seizing the moment with a bold attack, right? In you know, but ultimately this chapter ends with the defeat of the Liege forts. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. The, the Liege forts in Belgium. Uh, and the beginning of French attacks into Alsace. And that's kind of where I'm going to leave it off uh, for this episode. So the next, I got three more episodes planned for the Guns of August because it is a 500-page book. But a lot of it's military history, so uh, I don't want to repeat myself too much, and I feel I'm already sort of doing it. But this, this book does deal with such a condensed period of time, and it's so detailed in the personalities, the generals on the field, the decisions, the, you know, and later on in the book, it's much more about the fighting itself. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what I'm going to say about them, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, 
So yeah, so coming up in the next episode, we'll look at um, a little bit on Britain. Actually, we'll get to Russia, too, because we've still got the whole uh, Eastern Front to talk about. That hasn't come up yet in the book, but I think that's going to be it for now. So I'm planning uh, at least three more, maybe relatively short episodes like this one, where I'm going to talk about what she, she says in these, these upcoming chapters. But I think the theme of this book is pretty clear by, by this point, um, her overall thesis. And it's, I think it holds up. I think it's a, it's a convincing book uh, for what she's trying to do. Still very excited to get into the Proud Tower because I just think that's, that's more my cup of tea. Uh, it's dealing with questions and issues that I think a lot about, even things about culture and anarchism and, and, and you know, other elements of late 19th, early 20th century European history. But before we get there, we have to work our way through the guns of August. So um, anyways, if you've read this book, let me know what you think. Give me your thoughts about it. Uh, are there any personalities? I didn't talk much about the personalities here, except maybe King Albert. There's a lot here, maybe too many to keep track of. But um, but if that's a big part of military history. When I was young, I read military history. And I remember a lot of, about the generals and the specific, you know, their, their staff and the governments and all the different you know, people in the government, the diplomats. It's all its all part of how military history is written, um, even now. And that's a very popular genre. A lot of people like that stuff. It's, again, it's not my favorite thing to read, but the way she tells the story here, I think is quite good. Um, but anyways, let me know what you think. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and I guess that'll be it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for, for listening. When we the wall. On the line, scrap the paper, what more we can find? With a sure and fell hold, till the sun shall go cold, when we wound up the walk on the line. When we wound up the walk on the line.